Amen. You may be seated. I would like to begin this morning with a thought experiment. Uh, imagine you are on a giant cruise ship, thousands of people having a great time in the middle of the ocean, and one evening, out of the blue, the captain comes on and says, the ship is sinking. The ship is sinking. We are taking on water, and no one can get to us. No other boat can get to us on time. So the boat, the ship is going to sink, and we're all going to end up in the water before the day is over. The good news is that we have special life jackets for everyone designed to float in the ocean for a long period of time. Frantically, everyone rushes to put on their life jacket, but after a few minutes, after the dust settles, and you look at this life jacket, and you look at what's going on, you realize these are not life jackets. These are weight vests. These are weight vests. They say life jacket on them, but they are definitely 50-pound weight vests, and everyone's wearing them. Kids are wearing them. Friends are wearing them. Everyone is wearing these life jackets, these weight vests, and you're only a few minutes away from entering the water. What would you think? What would you say? How would you feel in that moment? I believe this is the way the Apostle Paul felt in Romans chapter 2 when he looked at the Jewish people 2,000 years ago. He argues in this passage, if you want to understand a high overview of what's going on in this passage, here's a summary. Paul argues that what the Jews were trusting in for salvation is the very thing that ensured their condemnation. That what they were trusting in for their salvation is the very thing that, it, that ensured their condemnation. The Jewish people were living with the false security that they were right with God. And millions today live with the false security that they are right with God. Maybe some of you here this morning, you're living with the false security that you are right with God. Millions are trusting in a 50-pound weight vest to save them in the ocean. So what is this weight vest that they were trusting in? Well, if you could go back 2,000 years and interview the average Jewish person and ask them the question, how do you know you're right with God? They would have given two basic reasons. And here are the two basic reasons. Here's a quote, life jacket that's actually a weight vest, 50-pound weight vest, they would have said, I'm a circumcised Jew, and I know and teach the law. This would be at the center of their confidence. How do you know you're right with God? I am a circumcised Jew, and I know and teach the law. Let's start with the first reason. I know that I'm right with God because I'm a circumcised Jew. Romans 2.17, now if you call yourself a Jew, circumcision was the Old Testament sign of belonging to the covenant people of God. To be circumcised meant that you were truly Jewish. And Jewish people took great pride in their heritage because it's a great privilege to be part of the covenant people of God. And they knew that. Out of all the families on, on the earth, that God had chosen Abraham and his descendants to be his people. So they considered it a great privilege. But over the course of time, a lie crept into their thinking. And here's the lie. That salvation is inherited from your family. That salvation is inherited from your family. So how do you know you're right with God? How do you know you're going to go to heaven when you die instead of hell? Well, they would have said something like this. We are children of Abraham. We are children of Abraham. We are the chosen people of God. And in John chapter 8, the Lord Jesus is helping the Jewish people. He's talking to Jewish people, and he's helping them understand their need for salvation. And this is what Paul is doing in, in this passage. He's helping them and us understand our need to be saved by the grace of God. Jesus says this in John 8, verse 31. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
Verse 33, we are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? So this is where we begin to see their appeal, their confidence. We are descendants of Abraham. They say we have never been enslaved. Now, Jesus could have said, you're right, Jewish people, you've never been enslaved to anyone except for all the times when you were enslaved. Like to the Egyptians for 400 years, and the Babylonians, and the Assyrians, and the Greeks, and the Romans who are currently enslaving you. Besides that, you've never been enslaved. But Jesus skips that point. He goes on to a more important matter. Verse 34, Jesus responded, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. What a statement. What a statement. Jesus is pointing out the deepest and most dangerous slavery in the world. It's slavery to ourselves, slavery to, to our sin. If you observe the shackles of slavery on your wrist, and you follow the chain to the source of your slavery, you discover that the chain is anchored in your own heart, that you're enslaved to yourself. You're enslaved to your own sin. And this is what Jesus is trying to help the Jewish people understand. This is what Paul is trying to help the Jewish people understand. This is what God's word is trying to help us understand. Jesus says you sin, not because you just made a mistake. You sin because you're enslaved to sin. And if you don't think you're enslaved to sin, try to stop sinning. Just try. Try to stop sinning. Now, you may not be out there killing people or robbing banks, but try to not be proud and self-righteous. Try to not be selfish. Try to be loving in everything that you do. You will discover quickly that there is a great power that sin has in our lives. And that, that power, the, the sin that lives in us can enslave us. And so Jesus says in verse 35, a slave does not remain in the household forever. He, he's saying, hey, Jewish people, you're, you're enslaved to your sin. And slaves, a slave does not remain in the house forever, meaning you're cut off from God. You are under the wrath of God. You're not going to heaven, but rather you're, you are in terrible trouble. You are condemned and you need to be set free. A slave does not remain in the house forever, but a son does remain forever. You need to go from a slave to a son. Verse 36, so if the son sets you free, you really will be free. Praise God for that. That the type of freedom that we need is a freedom from sin. And that's, that, that freedom is only given by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we have Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, standing in front of the Jewish people. And Jesus, is, he's pressing them. He's saying, you're not right with God. You're not right with God. You're not right with God. You don't have a right standing with God. But the Jewish people here are able to stand up and to look at Jesus and say, you're wrong, Jesus. We are right with God. Now, what is their defense? How are they able to look at Jesus and say, no, we are right with God? What is their security? What is their defense? Verse 39. Our father is Abraham. Whoa. Our father is Abraham, they replied. We are right with God because we are descendants of Abraham. Remember, God made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. We are those descendants. We are right with God because we have a godly heritage. We come from a godly family. This line of reasoning is alive and well in the religious world today. You know, sometimes I'll ask people a question. I'll say, I'll say something like, hey, are you a Christian? And they'll say, of course I'm a Christian. I say, what makes you a Christian? How do you know you're a Christian? And they'll say, you know, I grew up going to church. I grew up in a Christian home. I was baptized. My grandpa is a pastor. My dad is a pastor. My mom is a pastor. My brother is a pastor. Even my, even my cat Mittens, he's a pastor. I mean, he's a, he's a Mormon pastor, but he's still a pastor. Nevertheless, everyone around me, we're all pastors. We love the Bible. We're around the church all the time. 
And so therefore, I know that I'm right with God. And, and you might have Christian parents, and you might have been born in a Christian hospital, and you might have been delivered by a Christian doctor and cared for by Christian nurses, but none of that makes you right with God. None of that makes you a Christian. Because when you die, you will stand alone before your creator. When you die, you stand alone. Your parents won't stand with you. Your siblings won't stand with you. Your spouse won't stand with you. You will stand alone. And the faith of your parents, the faith of your friends, the faith of your spouse will not save you. You will stand or fall by your faith in Christ alone. You must trust Christ personally. You must come to Christ for yourself. You must embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your hope of eternal life and salvation. So in Romans chapter two, the apostle Paul is blowing up the idea that you have a right standing with God because of your family. Reason number two, I know and teach the law. So reason number one is I'm a circumcised Jew. Reason number two is I know and teach the law. So if we go back to the weight vest, remember it's called a life jacket, it's not a life jacket, this is a 50 pound weight vest that they're wearing. I am a circumcised Jew, and I know and teach the law of God. God made a covenant with one family in the Old Testament, one family, the family of Abraham. And God gave his law, his word, to one family. This is an incredible privilege. Paul is acknowledging the privilege of having the law. It is a great privilege to have the word of God. It is a great privilege to hear the word of God. It is a great privilege to sit underneath the teaching of God's word. It is a great privilege to teach the word of God. But there is a danger in being exposed to God's word. You know, when you hear God's word, you're going to go one way or another. When you're exposed to God's word, you, you, you will not be left the same. Even if you think you're left the same, God is doing something in the proclamation, in the teaching of his word, where you will go one way or another. There is a danger in being exposed to the word of God. Romans 2.17 says, now if you call yourself a Jew, that's a good thing, and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, these are good things. I mean, Israel was surrounded by these pagan nations who would sacrifice their children on the altar to their gods, who would eat each other. They, they were cannibals. They would eat other people. And they did all sorts of detestable things. And the nation of Israel didn't, at least for certain periods of time. They knew the will of God. They knew the purposes of God. This is part of the reason why David says, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Your word gives us light so we know how to live. We know what you're doing. We know how human beings are designed to operate. It is a huge privilege to know the will of God, verse 18, and approve the things that are superior. Not only did they know the will of God, they approved of God's will. Being instructed from the law week after week in the synagogues, they would hear the word of God over and over and over again. Verse 19, and if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law. If there's any group of people on the planet, you go back in time 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, if there's any group of people on the planet who would be a light to those living in darkness, a teacher of the ignorant, it would have been the nation of Israel, the covenant people of God. God gave them his word. And so as Paul is listing the, the, these blessings out, the Jewish people are saying, yes, yes, keep it coming, Paul. That's right, that's who we are. We're, we are the instructors of the blind or the ignorant. We are the teachers of the immature. That's who we are. We have the law. We know the law. We teach the law. That's who we are. 
But all of this is a setup for verse 21 when he says, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? Don't you teach yourself? One scholar said you could translate verse 21 this way. You then who teach another, you teach yourself, don't you? You teach yourself, don't you? You have all this knowledge. Of course you would teach yourself first, wouldn't you? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? The point is that having the law, knowing the law, teaching the law does not make you right with God. It does not make you right with God. Why? Because you can't keep the law that you know. You can't keep the law that you teach. And when God's people who have the law of God, who have the word of God, live like the Gentiles, they uniquely dishonor God. There's this, I mean, the Gentiles, they live like the Gentiles. The lost world, they live like the lost world. But when the people of God, who have the word of God, live like the world, there's, there's a unique capacity there to dishonor God. This is why Paul says in Romans 2.24, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And there are thousands of stories of pastors and missionaries and church leaders who preach the word of God, but they don't preach it to themselves. They tell others how to live, but they don't teach themselves. And then over the course of time, their lives fall apart. Now, this week I read the story of a pastor who I used to look up to years ago. His name is Pastor James McDonald. And he had a church of tens of thousands of people. He was a best-selling author. Uh, he started a church planning network with that planted hundreds of churches. He was a very influential man, but several years ago, his life and ministry fell apart. But then this last week, there was another article that was published about him. And this is what it says. It says, former pastor James McDonald, seven months ago, was arrested and charged with felony battery and assault for attacking a 59-year-old woman in, in a road rage incident that put her in the hospital for 21 days. So he goes from teaching all over the world to beating up an old lady. Now, I'm not saying 59 makes you an old lady, just for the record. I'm just saying you're getting pretty close, pretty close to old, okay? But he beat her up in a fit of road rage. He beat up this woman to the point where she had to be in the hospital for 21 days. And you think about all those people, all the millions of people who heard him teach the word of God and all the skeptics and everyone who, who, who rejected Christ. And when they see the name, Pastor James McDonald, Pastor James McDonald beats up an old lady. What do you think they do? They blaspheme God. They say it's all a, it's all a scam. It's all a scam. I mean, think about the way God intended for us to live, that we're created in his image and we're designed to reflect the glory of God. And as God gives us his word, that word, we're not gonna be perfect human beings. We're not gonna perfectly obey, but that word is designed to transform us from the inside out so that we live to the glory of God. But see, God had given his word to the nation of Israel, but they lived like the Gentiles. And so the name of God was blasphemed. The exact opposite was supposed to be accomplished. And this is where we find some of the dangers of knowledge. There are dangers in 
knowledge. It's a great blessing, to be clear. It's a great blessing to have knowledge. We need knowledge. The problem is never with the Bible. The problem is never with the word of God. You can't believe what you do not know. You cannot do what you do not know. But knowledge can become a trap. There's no solution with ignorance. Ignorance is not a solution to the problem of, to the trap of knowledge. Ignorance is not the solution. But knowledge can become a trap. And knowledge had become a trap for the Jewish people. And knowledge is currently a trap for millions of people in our country. Millions of people. So many religious people are trapped in knowledge. Now, here are three components to the trap of knowledge. Component number one is pride. Pride. 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Literally, knowledge inflates. That's what it means. It just pump, you just get pumped up. Your head just gets pumped up. And it doesn't take much knowledge to inflate our pride. It's easy to become self-absorbed. It's easy to think we know more than we actually know. Uh, recently, I read an article about a prominent online dating site. They have hundreds of thousands of people who have profiles with this online dating site. And they noticed a trend, and then they did a little, a little research on it. And what they noticed was that in these profiles, so hundreds of thousands of people, they, de they decided to ask men and women this question. Here's the question. Are you a genius? Okay, so here's the question. Are you a genius? And the answer did not go on the public profile. So this is just for internal use only. Are you a genius? Now, my understanding of what a genius is, it's someone who has an IQ of 160 or above. So that's very smart. And from what I can tell, about one in a million people have that. So about 300 million Americans, roughly, are geniuses in America. Now, what percentage of men marked, yes, I'm a genius? 47% of men said yes. Like, if you're going to push me into a corner, you're forcing me to answer, the answer is yes, I'm a genius. Okay, that's what it is. I just, I'm a genius. I'm a genius. Now, what about women? <laughs> what about the ladies? Well, 68% of women marked that they're, I'm just kidding, not 68, I'm not, not just joking. 35% of women said, yes, I'm a genius. But still, I'm like, 47% of men, 35% of women think they're one in a million. They think they're geniuses. It does not take much knowledge to inflate our pride. It doesn't take much information to make us think that we know way more than we do. Now think about this for a moment. The Jewish people had the knowledge of the glory of God. Out of all the families on the, on the earth, the Jewish people had the knowledge of the glory of God. So if you, you were to ask, how do you know you're right with God? I know the Bible. God has given us his word. And so many people today, that's their answer. How do you know you're right with God? I know the Bible. Maybe I even teach the Bible. I know the Bible. I teach the Bible. And so knowledge can inflate our pride. Component two, self-deception. Self-deception. James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So if you take in the word of God, you hear the word of God, but do not do the word of God, you can actually deceive yourself with the word of God. So if you hear the word of God, you do not practice the word of God, over the course of time, you can actually deceive yourself with the Bible. How does this work out? Well, you start to believe the lie that knowing equals doing. 
that knowing is actually the same thing as doing, that knowing becomes a substitute for doing. Knowing becomes a substitute for trusting. Knowing becomes a substitute for obeying. And you get to the point where you, you can take in so much information. I mean, it is way easier to learn than it is to obey. I, I know, just like you, I know way more than I obey. It is way easier to learn than it is to obey. And it is way easier to teach others than it is to teach yourself. It is way easier to teach other people, to tell other people what to do, than it is to teach yourself. The hardest person you will ever teach, the most difficult person you will ever instruct is yourself. It is yourself. So possessing the word of God without practicing the word of God can actually blind your soul. And so you have pride, and then you have self-deception, and then you have component number three. And this is where the teeth of the trap begin to lock in on people. Component number three is comparison. Comparison. Romans 2.23, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? So you have the law. That's great. It's good. What a privilege. You have it. Do you break it? They would have said yes. Of course we don't keep the law perfectly, just like we don't keep the law perfectly. Like, do you think it's wrong to lie? Do you lie? Have you lied? Do you think adultery is wrong? Have you committed adultery with another person? Or have you lusted in your heart? Do you have sexual fantasies about other people in your heart? That's adultery of the heart. Do you think it's wrong to steal? What about murder? Do you think murder's wrong? Jesus says if you've hated your brother in your heart, you're guilty of committing murder. And see, the more you know of God's word, the more you know you don't keep God's word perfectly. It's like the more you get into it, the more you learn, the more you realize, I don't keep this perfectly. The more you learn God's word, the more and more aware of your own guilt you become. A lot of people, they're just ignorant of God's word. They don't care about God's word. And so they can distract themselves and blind themselves from their guilt. But the more and more, this is a big struggle for many young Christians. They start to read the Bible. They get involved in the scriptures and they learn 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 more and more about all the different areas of obedience that they're not keeping. And they can feel guilty. So what do you do with that guilt over time? What do you do with your guilt? Well, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives us a story. He says in verse 9, he also told them this parable to some who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. A Pharisee was the most religious, uh, they're the most religious group you could ever imagine. They memorized the first five chapters of the Bible. They memorized it. Leviticus memorized it. Genesis, Exodus, the first five books of the Bible. They memorized these books of the Bible and they were given to doing it. They were the most religious people on the planet. Tax collectors were hated. They were the outcasts in Jewish, Jewish society. They were viewed traitors. You're not even supposed to look at them. They were outcasts. You weren't supposed to do business with them. So here are the two people, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God. I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Now, if you were to press the Pharisee, Pharisee, do you keep the law perfectly? He would probably say no. 
Okay, so how, how, how does he address that issue of disobedience in his life? This is what he would say. I'm not as bad as that guy. How do you know you're right with God? I'm not as bad as that guy. I thank you that I'm not like those people. And I try really hard. I try really hard to be good. I fast twice a week. Some of you haven't fasted twice in your life. He's fasting twice a week. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. So I'm not as bad as, I'm not as, bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as those people. And I try really hard to be good. This is where their confidence and security was at. It was in their own moral effort. And it was in condemning other people. This is why for the Pharisees, they could never admit their guilt. Because their righteousness before God was based on their own performance. So they could never admit their guilt. They could never say that they were wrong. This is where their confidence was at. So if you could go back to that weight vest picture, the quote, life jacket, which is actually a 50-pound weight vest, if you want to put that picture up. Life jacket, weight vest. What's their confidence? What are they trusting in to survive? I'm a circumcised Jew. I know and teach the law. I'm better than that guy, and I try really hard to be good. That's their security. That's their confidence. But Paul knows. He knows this guarantees their condemnation. Just like if someone has a 50-pound weight vest in the middle of the ocean, they're dead. They're dead. If you have any chance to survive, what do, you, what do you have to do? You have to take it off. You have to take it off. See, God is not going to grade you. He's not going to judge you on the basis of your moral effort. He's not going to judge you on a curve. He's not going to judge you according to how you compare to other people. He will give to each one according to what he has earned. He will judge you according to what you have done. And on that day, all of us will be found utterly guilty before a holy God. So what is the right attitude then? What is, if, you're, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, so I'm not, am, I, am I not supposed to try hard? What am I doing? Is it a bad that I know the Bible? Or what? What's the right attitude to have? Well, the right attitude to have is to trust in Christ alone. It, in your inner world, it is to trust in Christ alone alone. It is to take off the weight vest. Stop trusting in your family. Stop trusting in your moral effort. Stop trusting in your knowledge. Stop trusting in your goodness. Get rid of that and trust in Christ alone. He is our righteousness. He is our forgiveness. He is the mercy of God. But it's difficult to do. It's difficult to put our trust in Christ alone. Why? A lot of reasons. One is that we, we have to reach a verdict about ourselves. It is, it is easy to say, the world is messed up. Virtually everyone on planet Earth will say, the world is messed up. The world is messed up. It's, it's easy to say, yeah, we, we all are messed up. We all make mistakes. We all make bad decisions. It gets a little bit more difficult to say we are sinful because you can say you're, we all make mistakes, but at the moment you bring in sin and we say we are sinful, then you imply moral guilt. You say, okay, we have actually known what is right and done what is wrong. We have sinned against God. It gets even more difficult to say I am sinful. What's wrong with the world? I'm what's wrong with the world. I have sinned against God. But even when you say, I have sinned against God, I'm sinful, it's implied. 
hey, I can, I can change my life. I can get my act together. I can straighten myself out. I can go to church. I can get baptized. I can give to the poor. I can take communion. I can become a member of a church. You can put your hope in yourself. And so you, a lot of people can say, okay, yeah, I make mistakes. Yeah, I'm sinful. But what we're counting on is I can fix myself. But it is very difficult to say this. This is, this is where the Lord Jesus Christ wants each one of us to get to. This is where God wants us to be. It's very difficult to say, I am sinful and I can't do anything about it. I'm sinful and I can't save myself. No amount of good effort, no amount of good intentions, no amount of trying hard can save, save me from my problem of sin. It's very difficult to get there. It's very difficult to look at a godly family and say, my godly family can't save me. It's very difficult to look at myself and say, even on my best day, my best effort is still not good enough because the standard is the righteousness of God. It is a standard none of us can ever meet. It is difficult to say, I am sinful, I am a sinner in, in need of the grace of God. If God were, to, God were to condemn me to hell forever, that would be right. It's very difficult to say that. It's very difficult to say, I need the grace of God. I need to be rescued by the grace of God. In Luke chapter 18, we see the tax collector's response to God in the temple. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not, would not even raise his eyes to heaven but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What's his, what's his plea before God? I'm not as bad as that person. I try really hard. That's not his plea. What's his plea? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. It requires so much humility. It requires the grace of God for us to say, okay, God, I can't save myself. I'm a sinner. I've rebelled against you. I deserve hell, and I need your grace. I need your mercy. But Jesus gives us a great promise. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is where we are to be. Even if we're a Christian, this should be the posture of our hearts. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you ever put your trust in Christ? Has there ever come a time where you've, you've taken off the weight vest and you said, I'm not gonna trust myself anymore. I'm not gonna trust in my good, my good intentions, my good effort, whatever it is. I'm not gonna trust going to church. That's not what makes me right with God. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna trust my knowledge. That's not what makes me right with God. Have you ever come before the Lord and said, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need Christ. I need Christ to save me. And the good news is that whoever humbles himself will be exalted. God hears the cry of that sinner. He saves that person. He changes our lives. So if you're not a Christian, I would urge you, become a Christian today. Get rid of the weight vest. Embrace Christ as Lord, as Savior, as God, as King. And now, if you are a Christian, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, here's a question for you to, for you to think about. What do you do? Where do you run to? when you feel guilt? Where do you run to when you feel guilt? Like before you go to bed at night, you haven't fallen asleep, and you're thinking about your life and you experience guilt, or maybe you ask yourself the question, am I right with God? How do I know I'm right with God? Where do you run? Where do you go? Where do you go? 
Well, I would urge you, don't run to your own record. Because so many people, so many people do this. I can do this. So we say, well, you know what? I'm, God, I'm really committed to you. And God, I've, yeah, I go, I'm a, God, I don't know if you know this. I'm a pastor. I study the Bible. I try to read the Bible. I try to help other people. I, God, I've given some of my money away. I've, you know, and I can start to focus on my own record. And I would just urge you, don't go there. Don't go there. Because see, when you go there, if, it's about, if your security is in your own record, then how in the world do you, do you confess your sin? Because when you confess your sin, you're throwing away your security. So you have to protect yourself and say, no, I'm righteous all the time. That's where the Pharisees come from. Don't run to your record. Rather, run to the cross of Christ. So when your conscience is messing with you, when you experience the reality of guilt, go to the cross and remember at the cross, what is Jesus doing there? He took my sin. He took the payment of my sin, the guilt of my sin, and he died in my place for my sins that I might be forgiven, that I might be made righteous, and that he offers salvation as a gift to be received by faith. One great hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. What is our hope as Christians? What's the foundation underneath our feet? What is the source of our security and comfort and confidence? It is the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. That he bled and died to take away my sin. And now we stand secure, not in ourselves, not in our performance, but in the very righteousness of God. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Anything else will collapse underneath your feet. So put your feet on Christ. Build on that foundation. Romans 2.24, this is what Paul says. I've been thinking about this verse all week. He says, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. There are so many people who claim the name of Christ that, that even preach the word of God, but their lives blaspheme God because of the way they actually live. We could think of 100 examples, but there are also many, many examples. So many of you, you are walking with God, and you, your, your life is a glory to God. Your, your life is an example of what, of what Christians should live like and think like. Think like. You're not perfect, but your life glorifies God. And I just want to remind you that our culture, our world, is not going to read the Bible. They're not, your coworkers aren't going to read the Bible. Most of the time, they're not going to come to church. And so how will people know about Christ? How are they going to know about Christ? Well, so much of it comes, comes down to the way that you live. The, the way that you live, your, your walking advertisement for the gospel of grace. And so my hope isn't that you feel this incredible pressure to be perfect. It's not that. But I hope you sense the opportunity that we have to glorify God in the way that we live. And the way we do that is by planting our feet in the gospel of grace. The way that we do this is by, is by reminding ourselves we are sinners in need of the grace of God. And God has poured out his grace on us in salvation. It's, it's to remember that we are recip first recipients of grace and then we offer that grace to other people. We first have been loved by God and then we offer that love to God. We have received the righteousness of God. Now we live righteously in the world. 
But see, if I'm all focused on myself, then I start to compare myself to other people. And I think, well, I'm better than you and you're better than me. And and then it becomes competitive. And God doesn't want us to move out into the world that way. He wants us to move into the world as humble, redeemed sinners by the grace of God. And when our hearts are fixed there, then we are positioned so well to live to the glory of God. And so as Christians, we should aim at that. We should aim putting our feet on the gospel of grace and living in front of the world to the glory of Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for the gospel. I'm sure there are people here this morning who don't know you. I pray that today would be the day they would take off the weight vest, that they they would understand that that could never save them before a holy God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the rescue boat. You are the one that we need for salvation. And we thank you, Lord, 